The History of Personal Computing. History of Personal Computing. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History of Personal Computing podcast. This is show 56, and we're recording on Wednesday evening, January 18th, 2017. I'm David Grealish, purveyor of fine meats and hemp crop sultries, and I'm joined as usual by Jeff Salzman, inventor of the apparatus for the dry method of cow milking. <laughs> that's why you, <laughs> no, that's why powder milk is so expensive. Because <laughs> you got a special process. <laughs> All right. So how goes it? Oh, it's been busy the past couple weeks. <sighs> Me too. That's why the show got pushed back and pushed back a couple days. And it was somewhat productive too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have finished my first two college classes in a long time. All right, so that's why I stayed up to like one thirty in the morning last night. Did they get graded yet? No, don't no final grades yet. But I feel pretty good. I yeah, think I'm going to pull the... two A's. So I'll be really happy with that. Well, that'll be good. Keeping yeah. that four Yeah. So that and then um, signed up for two more. So I got eight more classes to do. So you know, four more part time semesters. So we have one week off, and then that starts up again. Of course, you know, it starts light in the first couple of weeks, and then all the writing and everything really picks up. A lot of writing. Unless yeah. it's a philosophy class, then it starts out right away, real quick. But this is all online school, so some all writing, everything. Oh, yeah. They can't just, you know, call you up on the phone and talk to you individually. <laughs> Um, in one of our final discussions, uh, one of the professors asked, like, uh, you know, did, did you get a lot out of it? And what did you like best? And is, is there anything you would change or, I guess, constructive criticism? And so my constructive criticism, so I, I was, have you taken any online college classes oh, yeah. before you have? Oh, yeah. So I'll be uh, interested. My master's degree is pretty much all online. And Well, I will be uh, interested to hear what you have to say to this, but... Um, I was surprised, and I, I mentioned that I thought it would be nice if we could get some um, lecture. There's no lecture at all. You know, there's no recorded lecture where they talk to you. And, Nothing. And I, I guess I kind of expected that they would record a little bit of that, and then you'd watch it. Yeah, that's all mine have that. Do they have it that? Varies. Oh, yeah. Huh. Um, See? It, it, and it varies. Some of them, it's just a really short lecture, lecture, and sometimes it's just funny watching them speak because, you, you know, they're reading from the, the board or whatever. They're being um, oh, a you know, the, the teleprompter. And some of them will read it in a monotone voice, clear, clear through all 10, 20, 30 minutes of it. And others will um, seem to not read what text they're displaying because they, they, they kind of show the text at the same time that they're talking. So you can follow uh, along. And sometimes that's out of sync. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I so, mean, you, you glean some information, but most of it is self-study. Yeah. Uh, and who knows, maybe some future classes will have a little bit of lecture, whatever. Not that I particularly love lectures, but, you know, it would have been kind of yeah. nice to get a little, like, where they're, they're talking to you, give their take on the subject and that sort of thing. Well, it depends on the professor and it depends on the uh, um, the capabilities of the 
environment you're logged on to, but uh, you could probably schedule uh, live talks or something like that or one-on-one talks with the professor. Uh, yeah. Most cases, they're also teaching, you know, at the brick and mortar school too. Yeah. Or, you know, doing other things. So, you know, de- right. You in the those. brick and mortar class, it's like, you know, the professor walks in and they, they talk to the class, even if it might be a short amount, but usually they're doing a lot of talking. Yep. Too much lecturing. There's a, there's a little trade off. You know, there's a convenience for doing it online. Uh, you, you don't have direct contact to the, to the professor during that time of study, mm-hmm. you know, during class time, whatever class time you assign to yourself, but you should at least have the ability to keep in contact yeah. with the professor and get questions answered. I haven't had a problem with that the whole time I was doing things. So yeah, there's an element that's missing, a traditional element that's missing, but yeah, you know, and which, if you're going uh, at your own pace, you're, you're you know, doing it late at night anyway. Right. Which, yeah. And, um, my wife and I, we've had good, you know, where they respond if you need to talk, uh, email them or whatever. And also in the discussions, they'll, they'll, you know, come in and, and add a little to it and different things like that. And some decent feedback on a lot of the grading and stuff. Not always, not always a lot, but some. So, um, so fill us in. So under the, the news items, this, this uh, show, you said you attended my first VCF workshop. What is yes. that all about? Well, the... Info Age area where well the VC Federation of Vintage Computer Federation where VCF East is at, um, and I don't know if they do it once a month or if they do it, you know, throughout the whole year or they do it once a month for a period of time and then take a break from it or whatever. But they have what's called the VCF Workshop, and basically it's a place where you can go, and um, you can go there either to help other people or just pay attention to other people's work or exhibits or whatever, or bring your own stuff to test repair where you have, you know, a bunch of people there to, to, you know, bounce ideas or questions off of. And sort of at the last minute thing, because I had a three day weekend last weekend, I decided to go and I took my son along with me and it's about a two and a half hour drive. So it's not too bad. Um, and I took along my, OSI, my Ohio Scientific uh, C2P, which is um, a big, it's like a huge S100-like computer system, mm-hmm. but it's proprietary. It's Ohio Scientific, um, and it's a C2P OEM. The C2P is like a short box. It's you know wide enough for um, power supply and two eight-inch drives, or a backplane with boards, um, and the original C2P would have an external box for the drives, whereas mine, it's considered an OEM version. Uh, it actually is just longer, so the backplane and boards are in the back side of it. It's got the power supply and, and up to two eight-inch discs at the front. And last year at VCF East, um, David, I always get his last name wrong. Uh, uh, guess why? I think is how it's pronounced. He had one of those of his own at VCF East. And, um, I had some of my discs that came with the one that I got 20 years ago, 18 years ago. And I had him, uh, look at some of those discs last year. Uh, but he was also there this weekend too. So I brought the OSI, uh, C2P and I wanted him to help me or asked him to help me, um, get it running again. 
So I tore it down. I never really used it since I got it 18 years ago. So basically, I just tore it all down, cleaned all the dust and stuff out of it, uh, checked the boards to make sure nothing was wrong, reseated the boards and reseated some chips and stuff, put it all back together. Another gentleman that was there, and boy, there's so many names going around, I didn't keep track of who was who. And one guy helped me with the, you make sure that the 8-inch disk drives were good because he fixes those. So I had uh, his expertise helping me out, and he brought a variac so we can bring the power supply up to power real slow, make sure nothing's going to explode, no capacitors are going to go boom. Yeah. And got the system up and running to the point where when you hook a terminal up to it, it gives the appropriate startup prompt, which is just three letters, H, D, or M, meaning do you want to start from hard disk, do you want to start from floppy disk, or do you want to do something with like a memory um, – there's like a memory – editor or something built in. We couldn't get that part to work. Um, but it came up HDM, which means it's good. Uh, we tried putting a boot disc in the eight inch drive. The, the head will close down. It'll load up, but it would, wouldn't go past that. Um, so something's wrong, but it did a lot more than I thought it would do. So now I know that works to that point, probably some easy fixes. Um, but um, at least I now know its status. I didn't know that before. And the other thing I brought along sort of at the last minute is actually going to be my VCF East exhibit. Um, and I'm not going to go into too many details about it, but I may have told you before about this one fellow ham radio operator who actually lives not too far uh, away from me, a couple counties away, that uh, was an avid assembly language programmer on the Commodore 64. You know, what we did in the 80s, programming in BASIC, he yeah. did programming in assembler. That's really all he used. He, he hardly ever touched BASIC. He was an assembler programmer. So he, he had all these disks that he archived from then, and he sent them to me in D64 format. And I looked through them, and basically he just wrote all sorts of utility programs for whatever he needed. He just wrote it himself. Huh. So I have... All those disks with all his source code in assembly format. But it wasn't until recently that um, I knew that he had a special developer environment set up. He uh, was able to set up two Commodore 64s together with a cable where he can develop on one and immediately send the compiled output to the other to test it without having to go through that usual sequence of program, uh, compile to disk, Re restart, try the program, and keep looping until you get it right. You know what I mean? Keep, right. keep doing the same stuff. You know, that, that accesses the disk drive an awful lot, and you, you play around with the switch or the reset switch a lot. Um, his method just used a cable and two Commodore 64s, and he was able to keep typing and editing on one and just send it to the other one without having to reset his programming environment. And he was able to test his programs. He kind of forgot how he did that, but he sent me the cable, <laughs> and I was testing it that weekend and got it to work. Oh, and it's cool. really slick. Now, nobody's really going to do things that way now, but you know this is, this, is, um, this is a moment in time. This is something that I don't recall ever reading anybody else doing. And I thought, okay, people need to know this stuff, even if it's just for the cool factor. So. Right. My exhibit is going to kind of show off his software and the stuff he did, and he gave me his, his full blessing to do so. And uh, I'm going to have a class on Friday uh, that actually demonstrates, um, 
you know, the, that whole process, the way the, uh, the developer environment is set up. But it, it was really neat. I was, I was blown away. I, I thought there's a lot of things you can do with the Commodore 64, but I didn't think you could do it this way. He wrote his own code to cool. do it, too. And so you, and you mentioned VCF East. Yes, so, you'll have to come there to see it. Which is going to be the last weekend of March. Actually, yes. actually March, March 31st, 31st to, yeah. and then April 2nd. I yes. guess actually technically the first weekend of April, right? Because Saturday and Sunday is yeah. really on April. And March 31st is Friday. So that'll be the, the uh, I guess, the classes or the uh, demonstrations. Um, I never really went on Fridays myself. I would just do the weekend thing. Yeah. But I'm going to go on Friday this time. So I'll be uh, specifically demonstrating this process um, in front of whoever wants to watch it. Uh, but then throughout the weekend, I'll have that same setup at a table you know, a little more informally. So by the way, too, the VCF SE Southeast in the Atlanta area is um, almost exactly one month later. So it's the last weekend of April. So just about four weeks. Well, I guess I think it is four weeks later. So I don't know if that's posted anywhere yet or, um, but it was discussed in a meeting recently. So they're gearing up now to, uh, you know, start preparing for that. That's close to where you live. So yeah. So two big, computer shows coming up in the next couple months um all right well that is cool so let's see um moving along so what i put uh as like news and something to talk about and the big opening of the show is did did i mention about did we talk about it last show at all that viva amiga documentary that came out it had a Kickstarter. i know there was a lot of uh, uh fanfare about it yeah they had like their uh world premiere something i think earlier in the month um, but I put a link in the show notes and, um, it's just, a, it's a review. So it's a link to, um, and also this is a, a cool site and they have a Facebook page and all retro computing news. Do you follow them? Oh, there's so some. much stuff. So, right. uh, yeah. Some, yeah, that's, that's basically yeah, so there's it. a, just there's a, a review over at retro computing news on Viva Amiga, the, uh, documentary. And, uh, it's definitely worth seeing. Um, so check it out. I won't, you know, I'll leave it for everyone to to read basically um you know the reviewer enjoyed it and uh what what they say as one part is going to read here see in conclusion if you're an amiga fan apart from the chance to see more of the story that has been widely shown before and much more of the people who still inspire the community today what you will really get from this fascinating film is a desperate yearning to be back in those heady days when the future is being rewritten by a crazy inspired gang of people who let's face it you just love to party with like it's 1985 Nice. Exactly. <laughs> so um, you can watch it, I know, on uh, iTunes and a few other places. Um, but I remember sort of hearing or reading, you know, that there's another Amiga documentary. Are you familiar with that one? So there'll be a link in the show notes to it as well. And I guess it came out earlier last year. We're in 2017 now. And it's called um, The Amiga Years. And it's actually a sequel to an earlier documentary that they made called From Bedrooms to Billions. And I think um, it's more, you know, European, uh, British from a a point or whatever. Uh, I know the the From Bedrooms to Billions, let me jump over. There's a link in the show notes. Um, Sorry about that. I I keep, I can't turn the sound off my smartwatch, at least not easily. So you'll hear that. I'm trying to go uh, back to the other one, but I think it's about the the English, you know, microcomputer history in England, and this is kind of a um, 
a sequel. Well, yeah, they played with the Amiga 2. Nothing wrong with that. But this was called From Bedrooms to Billions, The Amiga Years. So this is specifically a an Amiga documentary. I have not yeah. seen it. It's 5 bucks to rent, $15 to buy, and standard display format um, on Vimeo. So uh, anyway, just to mention those. So two Amiga documentaries out there. Yeah, the I got to watch those. New. Uh, the only Amiga after movie that I've ever seen was that uh, uh, the one that was filmed by the uh, creators of the Amiga. The last was it the Deathbed Vigil or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But even That's then, they, did, that, that, they, they weren't talking much about the Amiga, but they were just Amiga people. Right, uh, right. Doing that. And then other Commodore people. So a reminder to everyone that this is the podcast where we normally take an informal look at personal computing history through the lens of eBay auctions. And that makes it sort of like Antiques Roadshow, but all about antique personal computers. But last show, uh, Jeff and I took a look at um, basically, uh, you know, significant machines that we've owned, our, our own history of personal computing. And we decided to continue it into a second show. So that's what we're going to do today slash tonight starting with uh, technically our fifth computers. I, I guess it gets kind of gray in here because we probably it own does. more than these. 8-bit days were over, and all the fun stuff was... Yeah, and hopefully it didn't get too boring for anybody, especially if you're not a Mac person, because you know, mine are almost all Macs. In fact, Business they are. Business sort of just encroached into the, in, uh, into the home computing world. Yeah. Yours are going to be a little bit more interesting. My last one, I changed it out, though, and... Um, from what it was up there earlier, because I remembered another one. So it actually puts it out of order. But anyway, it makes it more interesting. <laughs> I had to resort mine to put them in order. I actually yeah. had the, the, the first one I'm going to talk about. I, I thought of it after I typed the third one down. Uh, and I thought, oh, now I'm going to have to move everything. I want these in sequence. Well, with the last show, we ended, let's see, with me, my fourth machine was a Macintosh Portfolio. Macintosh Performa 400, and that was roughly 1992, I think. And so you had a Commodore Amiga, which, uh, what year was was your, what did you get your first, com- what year was that for you? On your 1989. A little bit earlier. Um, okay. Yeah. So now, so now, uh, tell us about your fifth. Your fifth computer. My fifth that one. you owned. Well, my fifth one, I just kind of jumped into two, two things at once. Um, not only did I jump into IBM compatibles, but I also jumped into the laptop market. Um, I was in college for the few for the two semesters I was actually in a college in those early days, uh, and I I wanted a laptop. I wanted a I wanted an IBM compatible so I can use it for school. I I justified the purchase because I wanted to use it to type up notes in school, um, and of course. Um, it, I, I, it was at a time where it was still kind of nerdy to, to do so, you know, late, late eighties. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was actually late 89. I got this, but I picked up, I took out a loan for this too. I uh, went to the bank, got a loan, went and bought this, a Toshiba T1000. And I believe it was the SE version uh, the original T1000 had kind of a squat-looking display, uh, almost like 16 by 9. Um, but uh, mine, I believe, was more of a 4.3 display. I don't remember it being that squat because I played games on it and it looked okay. Um, it's just a, a IBM XT that 
you know, I was able to type notes on, I think I had access to word perfect or something like that through the school. Um, and I played like, I used it to play games more than I did any schoolwork on it. After a while it became kind of heavy to carry around school and the battery didn't last long. And, and, and the fact that I actually got tired of paying for it, <laughs> I ended up selling it, taking a small loss and paying most of the loan back right away. Um, but it, it, it was kind of a, an entry, uh, you know, Toshiba's first step into the world of MS-DOS, you know, they had to do something. Uh, so it, it was a pretty nice laptop. If I could find another one, I would probably buy it. Uh, I don't think they'll cost that much, but you know, that reminiscing thing. Uh, but that's basically it. I, you know, I had fun playing in the school cafeteria. People gather around and, you know, watch, watch the games like Leisure Suit Larry. That was always a fun game to play. Even if it was uh, four shades of grayish blue, very inappropriate. It was very inappropriate <laughs> because I didn't have my smartphone at the time to it, play it. And actually, way. you could play it in three different levels, right? Yes, what, I believe it? so. What, like the, or something the, like that. One was they, lewd, I think. Yes, <laughs> of course. I was I was twenty two, so yeah, uh, <laughs> I was old enough to watch that stuff. That was a popular game. That was a big time game. Oh, it is. Yeah. But it, but you so you had your Commodore Amiga so I'm assuming you probably didn't really your Commodore Amiga was still maybe your main machine absolutely because that was doing all the fun the magic the real games yeah wanted I was impetuous so I yeah. wanted that laptop I couldn't take the Amiga to 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 school yeah too many cables Amiga 500 is tethered with a whole bunch of cables uh, and there was no such thing as a portable Amiga that I knew of. Um, so yeah, having the having the laptop was the the T one thousand MS DOS laptop was actually pretty nice. It's just uh, the, I, it, it, the fun just wore off right away. Um, so that's why I ended up selling it. And I went to a computer store near here and one that gave me near top dollar for it. So I think I ended up paying two months worth of loan on it. That was my cost for you know owning it for a short period of time. Yeah, took a bit of a hit, huh? Yeah, but hey, that's what you that's what you get when you're you when you jump the gun and buy something, you know, on an impulse. And I'm pretty certain we covered the T1000 in an earlier show. I'm almost positive we did, didn't we? Or something similar, maybe I the 1200. So. Yeah, yeah, something similar enough. But I added a link in for the show notes, and um, I just did a search, and this is an article uh, from uh, just a couple of years ago by uh, Binge Edwards at PC World. And his article is called This Old Tech, the Toshiba T-1000 was my first step into the world of MS-DOS. Oh, so I wasn't the only one. And so so here's a nice article with some good pics and all that you can check out about, uh, of course, it's yeah, not, that's it's not the regular Jeff's T-1000. computer. But, yeah, T-1000 SE has the taller display and a slightly different keyboard, I believe. Okay. Huh, yeah, well, add something for someone to look at. <laughs> and that one's all yellowed, too. That's what yeah, they did. I noticed that. Look at the battery pack and stuff. I, he did some, like... Uh, like a redneck <laughs> fix up on it or whatever. So, um, so in the last show, my last, um, I got my first color Macintosh, the Macintosh Performer 400, and uh, which was essentially a consumer, well, yeah, consumer mass retail consumer version of the LC2. I bought it at Sears, and that's when Apple expanded. They started selling Apples and Macs in a like um, Office Depot and I think Best Buy and a few other places. So I got my next computer um, 
and it was also a performer because I also bought it at Sears. <laughs> and it was the <laughs> Macintosh Performer 6200. And I bought that, I think it was either late, late 1995 or early 96. And, um, and so definitely for the time, that was like the most expensive computer. Yeah, that was the best computer I could afford to buy and use a credit card again. But I was, um, it was worth it because I was doing a lot of freelance um, desktop publishing and pre-press and all to um, earn extra money for the family. And that helped pay for it. I want to say off the top of my head, it was... I know it came right under what the like the limit of the Sears card was. I want to say it was twenty three, you know, twenty two hundred and something maybe before tax. So, you know, good chunk of change, especially My at that first time. Sears card was seven hundred dollars, and and I, well, with I think that, it was like twenty five hundred was the Sears limit. It, with that was the only reason why I got it is because I wanted to make a purchase at Sears at, at the time late eighties. The only way they would give you stores would give you credit cards is if you at least considered making a purchase right away. And that's when I bought my first RGB uh, color monitor so I can hook it up to my Commodore 128 in 80-column mode. So I bought a Magnavox-branded RGB composite monitor, you know, the Mm -hmm. dual-mode monitor. Yeah. And, you know, they gave me a a credit card in in consideration of making that purchase. (laughs) Sears did that, yeah. So I put a link in the show notes to an article at Low End Mac, which is a website I used to go to a lot, and it's still a great resource, really great resource for um, you know information about old Macs and just lots of just good articles and history and stuff. So to talk a little bit about this particular um, machine, it uh, it actually gets a, a dubious award that they hand out called a, a Road Apple. Does, I'm looking to see if it says that anymore. But I know it was awarded a, a road apple. Oh, okay, I see it. Because because they're considered some of the worst Mac hardware ever made. And the reason... Yeah, I live so close to Amish country. I know what real road apples look like. For me, and it really wasn't a bad machine at all. The reason it got a road apple award, though, was because um, it was sort of crippled... Uh, from the get-go. So in the PC world, you had, um, I think this might be your next one. I'm not looking at it, but uh, you had the 386SX. And what the 386SX, you correct me if I'm wrong, um, Jeff, but I think it mm-hmm. might be an oversimplified way to explain it. But yeah, you had the 286, all right? The 286 yes. was a 16-bit processor sitting on a 16-bit bus. And then basically you came out with the first 32-bit processor, the, the 386 Intel, and uh, the, which was, and then they, they came out with the SX and the DX. The DX is uh, like compact being one of the first they took the th- they made a 32-bit bus to stick it on but there's a lot of um, clone manufacturers um, and I think even IBM and all them later on they they basically took 286 motherboards and stuck 386s on them and uh, and that's what the, the SX was a 32-bit was a 386 with a 16-bit bus it would work that way but the 386 SX also I believe lacked like the Mac processor and, yeah no, that was a 46, I think. Um, that was the difference with the SX. Well, and there the was a 387 chip. Yeah. yeah which well, would have been in a any case, processor. Maybe this, that may. Okay. It's been so long, right? Yeah. But yeah, you're right. There was That's a, the basic a functional limitation it, yeah. uh, that created the SX DX split, you know, all through the, uh, all through the ages until, uh, you know, Pentium came by. 
so so in the world of uh, the Macintosh is Motorola made all the processors for the Macs up until the PowerPC came out, which was a a dual project between Motorola and IBM based on the power processor, and it was called the PowerPC. So this case, if you go to this article and look at my Performa 6200, that same exact case, uh, I think, started shipping in 92 or 93 as a Quadra like 630, which was a Motorola 040 processor. They had the 020, 030, 040, sort of like Yeah, they had 46. the 040 for the Amiga too. You can yeah, exactly. Nice same processors. And um, so they were 32-bit um, buses and all, very fast processors. But the PowerPC was technically a um, 64-bit but processor. And, and uh, but anyway, basically, make a story short, is what they did is they basically took the Quadra 630, you know, Motorola processor motherboard, and they stuck a PowerPC on it. Sort of like what they did, you know, so it's sort of crippling it from the factory, if you will. It, it couldn't deliver its potential. And uh, that's why, that's kind of why it was considered Road Apple. Still, at the time it came out, for how much it cost, for all practical purposes, it still was fast. Fast enough for me in any case, and I was happy with it. <laughs> so, Get your Mac stuff. So, that's what's important. So having said all that, it was a big upgrade for me. And, um, and here's another side story is... It is actually the computer that was responsible for me to uh, become a computer technician. So at, by that point, 1995, 96, I was definitely a power user. So I was very technical, but I was in pre-press and desktop publishing what I did for a living after the military. And um, my our first child, who was still, I think, a toddler then, two years old or whatever, unbeknownst to me, she had stuck a paperclip in the floppy drive. And all of a sudden, my floppy drive didn't work anymore. So I called... Apple and reported it. It was under warranty. Back then, they'd send a technician to your house. Can you believe that? Yeah. And yeah. so, so a guy came to my house. You can get get you know somebody can fill up. An attendant would be at the gas station to fill up your car too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> but a guy came to the house and uh, pretty quickly figured out. Used a little flashlight and reached in and pulled a paperclip out of the flop paperclip out of the floppy drive and fixed <laughs> the floppy drive. And I felt kind of embarrassed but relieved. And uh, and then I had a little conversation with him, like, well, you know, this is great. Wow, you work for Apple and you get travel around and stuff. And I go, well, how do you get a job like that? How could I apply for a job like that? And he goes, well, funny you should ask. And he had just gotten another job. And so oh, guess okay. what? At his job. <laughs> just then, like, a few weeks later, I had the job. The lesson to learn is it never hurts to ask. <laughs> exactly. And I had that job for about... A uh, little over two years, and I was the Apple tech in the greater Jacksonville, Florida area, and I would travel the, all around about if – you, if you put 200 miles around Jacksonville, Florida, I went all over that area to you know businesses and churches and houses. Anybody had a Mac under warranty, and uh, I, just the end of the story. So, this is just before Steve Jobs came back to Apple, and of course, the bad old days that crept up, and, uh, and I got laid off because you know things got bad. <laughs> And, uh, so, how many paper clips did you recover from? I don't think any. No, I think about. I, I certainly fixed some broken <laughs> floppies, though. But so that was, it was a just all I enjoyed it. You. Excuse me, and I, um, you know, and I've pretty much been a computer tech ever since. After that, so anyway, that went a little long, but I, I did like that machine. And um, you go ahead. What did what'd you get next? What I got next was, and, and I'll just. Um, oh yeah, see. Well, <laughs> between the time that I got my first Amiga 500 and my second Amiga 500, uh, my first Amiga 500, I decided to put into a bigger case. So I bought a full-size 
IBM AT case. Uh, they you they were very it cheap, big. huh? I didn't get it cheap either. It was it was pretty much heavy steel with uh, you know the plastic and and painted steel top. But um, what I did for the Amiga 500 is I I bought a PC power supply and I wired it up. I took the motherboard out of the um, Amiga 500, put some protection under it, kind of laid it in the case, and then rerouted all the um, connections as many as I could to the outside of the case, and then the keyboard. Well. I, I just took the keyboard assembly out of the Amiga 500 case and extended the keyboard cable. It looked really ratty, but it worked for me. And I just put the floppy drive in, uh, in, in the drive bay, and it worked. I was able to sit monitors on top quite easily. It, it helped save a little bit of space. So, And eventually that one went bad, and then I bought another Amiga 500 to replace it. But then I still had that case. Um, an opportunity came along, which I can get a... Uh, a 386 motherboard and I already had a power supply and a case for it. So I bought the 486 or 386 power or motherboard and put it in that case. And before long, after also getting a monitor, I had a 386 SX 16 megahertz, uh, in the old case that I used for my original mega 500. And this was my real, this is my first real DOS and windows desktop computer. Windows 3.1. And I'm sorry if you had said already. What year was that? This was, it would have been 91. Wow, so that was right after 3.1 came out, huh? Yeah. Well, see, at that time, I had, I was actually working field service for computers. I just never owned one. So I managed to be able to get one at cost, you know, at least the motherboard. I wasn't making a whole lot of money doing field service, but I was able to, to at least get some parts at cost. And I thought, okay, it's about time for me to own one. And then so you're I jaded st- ever since. I, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I still use my Amiga a lot for the longest time. Uh, uh, it was an Amiga and this PC. Uh, and sometimes I would move my external modem from the Amiga across the room to the PC and do stuff with that. But... My you know, Amiga was still my primary computer, but now I had some at-home Dawson Windows experience. I was definitely a Mac snob, and I, you know, but I, you know, over the years in collecting and 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 obviously I started moving towards using Windows regularly too. After about Windows uh, ninety-eight, I guess, and on, especially in the corporate world. But you know, so I came to re- to start liking Windows. You know, I still like the Mac better. But, you know, it wasn't like Windows, I especially thought Windows 3 and 3.1 was, you know, clunky compared to the Mac. But in, in all fairness to them, you know, it, it was actually not bad at all. No, it's, it, it did what it did for business and stuff. I mean, you, you had the Mac and PC uh, fights going on, but they each had their own special purposes. And I, I added a show note for uh, yes, I see that, and I, I listened to this podcast before yeah, too. Yeah, you remember I, this one? So it's still available. It's kind of sad that it. it ended, but yeah, he still has them up there. It's yeah, since it's you used the term "boring beige box," I, it made me think yep. of it. So, and that's that's where I remembered it from too. Yeah, so. if uh, if, you, if everyone out there, if you never uh, listened to this old podcast, it's still amusing and a lot of fun. Um, you know, especially it's about old computers. So it, even though this is some years later and it's not being made anymore, it's still relevant you know yeah it's almost nine years old now yeah and um uh and now i'm going blank is it matt i think isn't it matt 
Ah, that's bad. But it's been a long time. I haven't spoken to him in a long time. Go listen and find out. There's I had him on the RCR at least once. I want to say more than that when I was rotating the guests and stuff. So he came on. That was cool. But yeah, he does some good episodes. He's going to start with the early ones. The Boy yeah, Beige did. Box. 2006 to yeah. November 2000, no, April 2006 to January 2011. Wow, it really has been that. It has been that long. Yeah, do you know, yeah. just to just to mention the retro Mac cast, James and John, you know, they just celebrated their tenth anniversary. They just did their tenth wow. anniversary show. There's still still more to say about the Mac. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Huh? All right. Well, moving along. Let's Quite see. a bit. Let me close these windows over here. Um, yeah, that's what I was doing here too. I all right. So so moving to my next one is uh so I think I got this one around ninety seven, I wanna say. And it was another Macintosh Performa 6400. This time, I bought this one secondhand. So I didn't buy it at Sears, and I got a much better deal on it. And uh, there's an article from every Mac that gives you the specs and what it looks like. It's a tower. And I don't need to say a whole lot. It was a bit of a – it was just a slight bit of an upgrade over my my old – my 6200. Um, really utilizing the same the same wiring ch- chassis harness, though, just vertically instead of, a, you know, literally just a, a tower – case versus a desktop but one thing that was interesting about it is if you look at the bottom the way the feet are there was actually a subwoofer built into the bottom of it and um, if you just use the internal speakers it didn't utilize it but you could buy just a basic set of you know decent little plug-in speakers and if you plug the speakers into it then it would use it would use the speakers and then it would use the subwoofer <laughs> built into the bottom <laughs> and it was kind of uh it was pretty cool and um, but you know nothing particularly. It was still a performa. Technically, uh, you know some people consider it underpowered because um, the same deal with the, the the logic board and then the processor. You know how they did the processors on thirty sixty four bit processor on a thirty two bit logic board. Mine, um, I did something really neat with, and I really hated to sell it when I did. But you know Macs are expensive, and I always had to like recoup money which I just did this last time when I got one to, to buy a new one. I always generally had to sell my old one. Um, but I went to either, you know, one of the home Depot or Lowe's and I bought, you can buy these kits where you can paint something and make it look like um, natural wood grain or some type of granite or marble, or I'm sure there's other stuff. Yeah. So I actually took this case and I took all the panels off and I made it look sort of like this green black marble. And man, interesting. Okay, I, and I don't have any pictures of it. I know I took pictures, but I, I couldn't find any. But it looked great. It looked really good. <laughs> when I put it all back together, it looked like a big slab of marble. So you hid any yellowing that would come from it. Yeah, uh, but that, I, I was really proud of that thing for the longest time. So, um, so it was fun. It was kind well, of well. That's a, how you decorated yours. Me, I take mine out of their original case and stick them in something else that's a little more plain. Yeah, uh, mine have made it. Super fancy. Yeah. I remember the one thing that bugged me was the... Um, Should have put gold gilding on it. The front of the door of the CD drive, you know, that I didn't do the marbling thing on. So that remained sort of beige up in so there. So you could find it. Well, <laughs> and I kind of like always regretted, like, why didn't I... I should have like ejected it and painted it or whatever. But it wasn't a big deal. Oh, yeah. So in this article, it said it has uh, it had SR, it had surround sound 3D subwoofer. Which is pretty was pretty good for uh, jamming out on and w- watching videos and stuff. I don't think I did a lot of that. So that wasn't built in. That sat on the floor, right, as an external piece. The subwoofer? 
Yeah. Yeah, it was built into the bottom of that case. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you if you looked on the bottom of it, you would see the that speaker grill or whatever. Okay. That's that explains why it looks like it's lifted slightly off the yeah. surface. Right, the way they did the feet and all that stuff. So had a 200 megahertz PowerPC 603E. Screaming. Yeah, which it wasn't screaming by, it was definitely a consumer Mac, but it wasn't bad. I mean, you know, I was happy with it. We said that was 1997, correct? Yeah, I think, okay. or 98 maybe. So yeah, I guess that was, it's screaming compared to, well, when we get to my next one, because that was a few years earlier. Yeah, so I had the 200 megahertz, but it said, which it says came out in August of 96. See, so yeah, I want to say I, I, I got it, it was like a year and a half old. The one I bought, I bought it secondhand, so I got a fairly decent deal on it. So, um, all right, we'll take it away on your next one. Okay, my next one is um, technically I didn't get much further than the uh, 386SX. Um, I was working for a different company at the time, and they sometimes it was a mom and pop computer repair store. And they were doing upgrades, and they they do whatever they do to you know stay in business. They were selling computer parts, building custom systems, doing upgrades and stuff. But every once in a while, a board comes back uh, that's just sort of available. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted an upgrade for my 386, and the 486 was all the rage. And one of the boards that had gotten upgraded was this had this IBM, or was it Intel? 486 SLC2. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and basically what an SLC2 is, is a double clock 386 SX. Is it really? So It is. It's. Huh. 47 math coprocessor slot or, or socket. I never used it, but it was a, it was a faster computer, uh, but it was basically an overclock 386. It's just the SLC2 never lasted very long it was very uh, obscure how could they call they it a 486 though i don't know why and i tried looking it up but i do remember it was a 486 uh, i think it's because of the clocking mechanism or that it's compatible with the 487 math coprocessor hmm. so they probably tweaked the die a little bit to you know make it a a double clock 386, but so it would interface with the 487 math coprocessor. That's the only thing I can guess from it. And this board just went into the same case that the 386 SX was in. Hey, check it out. I just added a link. I okay. found a, a picture. See what you think of that. Does that look like uh On a BlackBerry forum. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, it was on well, eBay. Oh, okay. So I guess it was a picture taken from eBay. IBM. You know, that... Uh, it's similar. I think I the one that I had SLC, was SLC, though. I just remember that. You know, I, I yeah. was thinking that it was like because remember IBM, they would out. I don't know if it's the right term, outsource, or they, they you know they would get other manufacturers to make them. So I think like like Intel did not make that processor. If I'm right, didn't like Citrix or somebody else? Yeah, I know Citrix made an SLC too. Or what was uh, the other? It, what was the other company? A, not AMD. There was another one too that was sort of making. In the forty-six well, years, IBM was making stuff. Uh, There's an yeah, they Citrix. Would make, they'd make and, upgrade chips and all too. Wow, what what was it? Um, oh, hang on, I think I found something. 
Uh, I found this page. Maybe I'll put this in instead. Oh, uh, I just like or add it. Got a really um, nice. Pa- oh, look! I can look at. I can see the processor now. It, it says ULSI. Look at the one oh, I just put here. Math copro. I don't know. Do I? Emmy bias. I don't think that actually shows you all the different 46 series chips and Cyrix. Yeah, there you go. That was it. Um, you can see the IBM 46 SLC two, and yeah, it says here it's it's a double clock 386 SX with some tweaks. So whatever those tweaks are, um, that's crazy though. I don't see how they could make it a 46 and it be well you're right it must have been technically a 46 but it was like a hybrid 386 sort of thing yeah and then they had a a 46 dlc um which what was that was that actually a a 486 cyrex made that i have never heard of that before and amd made a 486 dx40 so yeah cyrex see things are more interesting back then yeah, and, and all the varieties. People just hear the buzzwords, you know, 46. But, you know, this makes sense why somebody would have traded it in because it was probably just not performing against their friends, 486. Um, oh, and look at the um, – like this is just before – what was it called? The the type of socket that was really easy, the ZIF or ZIP or – Yeah. Where you just had a little handle and you could take them in and out really easy. What was that socket called? That's that's ZIF zero insertion yeah, force. ZIF. So I don't, right? And this is like just before that was possible, or it was available. Yeah, um, and well, the SLC two, as depicted in the picture on this page, uh, was soldered straight to the motherboard. It just had a socket for uh, supporting chip. Yeah, the um, link that you provided. Let's put that one in the show notes. That one's great. That is a really. I think I already put that in there. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking out the other one though. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll just put that one in the show notes because that's really that's really a nice. It's got a lot of great pictures of all the classic. That was just that was kind series. of an interesting, exciting time. It was, and then this is when the the Market Pro shows or yeah, that's exactly were out. what I was thinking about. And, and you had you, you go to these <laughs> vendors that have all these cards or signs up there that had all the cpus that they sell and the prices exponentially getting larger and all the ram and it was you know, confusing but it but fun it to is. figure out and, and then all the motherboards and then of course you had your um uh what is it the multimedia kits with the cd-rom sound card and stuff so you can you know play your music on the computer and you see that very last one that that's a is this on a, maybe a laptop or something see that the very last the slc 266 yeah but see how different it looks? Yes. Oh, that's soldered that's on. A kind, that's kind of how, yeah, mine was. It was soldered on. It just had an empty socket. Huh. Very so interesting. License. This is the IBM version, not an Intel version. Maybe this is the one I had. Well, it says Intel um, as well, though. Yeah, it also says IBM. Oh, I guess it's you have to have. You notice it has a 1985 Intel copyright, but it's a 92 IBM copyright because I guess Probably they have Intel to still the x86 compatibility. Yeah, they, right, they have to still give them the copyright credit for the yeah, x86 line. Yep. Well, that's cool, man. I like that. Yes, yeah, Cirix. Gosh, I haven't thought of them in such a long time. And then you see, there's the, the one picture of the overdrive, the Intel overdrive, but all of them made those. 
Oh, That's... Orange. Wasn't there another one? Orange? Something that made a lot of the upgrade processors. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm trying to remember that, but I do remember I like you, could, it. you could get 46 chips that piggybacked on 386s and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I did it one time. S- some machine. All right, well, so moving right along then. So what I have is my seventh computer, and this was this was a uh, a big one for my family. So this was in um, it's the nineteen. So this is very specific. It's the nineteen ninety nine three fifty megahertz Blueberry iMac. So this was the entry level uh, nine hundred and ninety nine dollar. They had you know the original iMac came out in August of ninety eight for like twelve ninety nine. And I, it, I'm pretty sure this is correct. When this came out in late 99, this was the entry-level iMac that was only came in one color, blueberry, and it was 9.99. And actually, we got ours, you know, spring of 2000. After Which is 666 upside down, right? <laughs> after we got our tax return. That's how I was able to afford it. We, we had just enough money to get this iMac and get a, uh, a printer, a new all-in-one Epson printer. I was still doing pre-press work and all that stuff to make extra money, even though I was a tech. But um, so anybody who's familiar with um, the original iMac, there's a couple of differences that changed with this model. Um, So the original iMacs had like a laptop um, CD-ROM drive. You would push it and and it would just sort of eject out. It wasn't motorized, though, Um, sort of flimsy looking. And so with this iMac, they had a slot loader. Because I have really a couple nice. of these. Uh, I have a grape and uh, orange, and I think they have the two different types of... Uh... Yeah, so this was a slot load, which was very, very elegant. It would suck the CD in, you know, and spit it out like your car, maybe, if you had a really nice CD player back then. And also, they had improved the case design. But they design. bind up from time to time, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, if they could break. But they had improved the case design where the original iMac had a lot of like uh, metal, uh, you know, metal shielding in there, where they could completely remove that, so um, so you could really see into the case. And I know like um, what was one of the like the ruby and a couple of the other colors, you could they were more clear. We could really see inside of them, which made it just kind of more impressive. But this is the, my first iMac and. Um, Loved the death out of this this computer. Bought a little stand, which like put it up off the desk about eight inches, and you know, and you could put stuff under it, and, and just made it more ergonomic and just yeah. really nice. Gets um, it at a nice eye level too. So, and I put another article in the show notes uh, back at Low End Mac, and it's called "Which iMac Is It?" Low End Mac's Guide to Differentiating G3 iMacs. So, it's a great article. Tell you a lot more about those and the colors. Um, so Apple really only uh, changed the design the one time there, and then obviously they did speed bumps and other you know updates with like putting uh, CD burners and DVDs and different things. But they only really redesigned it one time and changed the colors. Um, but you know the iMac was a really definitely a significant computer, um, obviously for Apple's comeback, but just in the realm of computer history at this point too. Yeah, it's possible to look past that hockey puck mouse, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which it still came with his entire lifetime, which and they were terrible. I hate it. I got rid of mine right away too. Um, but there you go. So, so Johnny had, Johnny Ive, you know, he comes out with the uh, weird stuff. But that was probably the longest. I think um, after this, this was probably the last true family computer, which mostly I still used on my wife a little bit. Um, 
that we had in the family that by, I want to say it was 2002 or three, then finally for the first time, my wife and I both got our own laptops. And then we always have since then. And then we, we got like a, I had like an older used little desktop for the kids. And ultimately they got their machines, their own machines and so on. So, um, all right, well you take it away at the next one. Okay. My next one, which is, I guess my last one for this series didn't get very far. I got the 46 SLC two in 1994 or five, uh, might be a little off on that. My next one was in 1997. It actually could have been 96 to 98, but, um, was my first color laptop. The IBM ThinkPad 750, I believe it was a 750 series. It, and I think they had sub-series too, like 751. I'm not sure. But it, I, I remember it was 750-something. And the 750 and was more high-end, wasn't it? It was, it was because how I got it. Um, I, I was uh, doing some work. My, my dad was working for somebody who uh, buys old medical equipment, recycles it for parts and stuff. But sometimes he picks up a few business items, uh, when he's like clearing out an office or something. And he happened to have a bunch of IBM ThinkPad 750s, um, with docking stations, the Mm. docking station two, which I have a link to a picture of one. It's a big, the technical term is honking big. (laughs) Um, but it's a big desktop docking station. It had a five and a quarter inch slot in in the front. It had an LCD um, control display or LCD status display with a power switch. Um, and it had speakers on the side. And on the back, it had a couple of, uh, uh, had like the external slot or external uh, connections that passed through from the laptop, that's what docking stations do. But it also had room for a couple slots, you know, for, for cards. You can just put, um, what was it, ISA cards in back then. And it was given to me because I was taking some of the stuff. He didn't have, it's 1997. I had an eBay account. He did not. So I was selling stuff for him on eBay. And he gave me the ThinkPad and the docking station too as, uh, you know, payment for that. And hey, I was loving it. <laughs> Full color laptop. Sure, why not? Um, and it was great. You know, you just had this big system on your desk and you just stick the laptop in it. It was my first real experience with a docking station. It locked it down tight. IBM always went overboard with the, the security and stuff of these things. Even had a key to lock it in place. Uh, I think this is before Kensington locking systems really you know, did a lot of work. But you can hook up an external keyboard. You can hook up an external monitor to the thing, and you know, kind of like the uh, that Apple laptop, the, the, the MacBook docking station, yeah. the Duo Dock. It's big. It has a lot of stuff, and it, and it nearly swallows the entire computer. It made it where uh, when it was docked, it, you really weren't lacking anything that a desktop had. Exactly. Part. So this was the counterpart for it. Yeah, and I had that for quite a while. Uh, I think I eventually just sold it as I was just getting faster and faster computers from the computer shows. Um, but it was nice when I had it. Uh, let's see. You added a new link. What, oh, what yeah. So I just uh, – this may not be your exact one, but um, this is a link we can put in the show notes and uh, actually scroll up a little bit from the um, the link under first looks. And ah, this there is it out is. of um, – 
PC World? Is that what this is? PC? Uh, yeah, Google's uh, archive of yeah, PC World. Yeah, PC Mag Magazine, which is, you know, it's great. You can look at old magazines. So this is from uh, November 9, 1993 issue, and you can look at it for free. Yeah, that was about it. It had the, the front floppy drive. And then I think what I did is I put a CD-ROM drive in that five and a quarter inch bay on the dock two. Um, and then, you know, it had a full computer with, you know, CD-ROM capabilities just by sticking a laptop in there. It was fun. It wasn't, wasn't the fastest thing, but, you know, it was nice. It was nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you got a lot of respect if you're carrying around a ThinkPad, even from Mac people. <laughs> That's right. People get hired to upper management positions, only one, right? That's kind of interesting because, you know, in a way, that was maybe, uh, you know, well into the mid to late 90s where, where you know, some, uh, an IBM personal computing product that still had that, uh, you know, premium, you know, sort of... Uh, experience or want to say reputation or whatever yeah and they were built well yeah well they were like the you know the executives laptop for sure so they weren't cheap <laughs> they were not but yeah that's why i didn't mind that as payment for the work i did instead of cash because i knew i could put it to use and you have to admit it's a tried and true basic design and style because it still exists the, the current Lenovo's, which, um, you know, in my job right now, I, I have two sitting on my bench right now for people when I come back into work in the morning to finish. And uh, they're two current, uh, what are they? They're, they're the current Lenovo T460S's. Now, granted, they're, they're uh, ultra books. They're a lot lighter and thinner and more elegant. But they're still, they're still utilizing that same exact basic color scheme and style. Yeah, um, my son does. Just... Look like ThinkPads from the '90s. Yeah, my son has a couple ThinkPads from the early 2000s, um, and I didn't realize this until he told me. He took them both to the uh, uh, VCF workshop, but he has two ThinkPads. One actually manufactured by IBM, the other manufactured by Lenovo, and they're very similar mm-hmm. in configuration. I guess there was a time where. A, a certain model then became Lenovo's model, uh, but maintained mostly the same specs or nearly the same specs, but they kind of look very similar. But I want to say, like, Lenovo had been making them for IBM for quite a while when IBM yeah. finally just sold it off, right? Yes. I, I mean, I think IBM in-house made them originally, but... Cause so they contracted Lenovo, and then eventually they were like, you know, we don't want to associated with anymore and they let lenovo take over yeah yeah my uh current company um we do dells and lenovos so um i i kind of like the dells better (laughs) but i don't dislike the lenovo so we have uh you know these model numbers don't mean anything so the t460s and the yoga 260 i think and then we use dell e740 70s but um i kind of like the dells to me a little bit better they have a slightly rubberized sort of feel about yeah them. the ibms were a little more utilitarian in design dell had a little bit of style or flair to it well the biggest difference between these two at um is that the dells have a uh, glossy screen and the lenovo's have a matte screen so some people like that better i i actually do like the matte screens which is yeah which is more unusual nowadays all right so no, that's what fine grade sandpaper is for 
So to wrap it up very smoothly, (laughs) the the last one for me is actually not my eighth computer. Um, I actually had that would have been my very first um, modern laptop was a 2002 uh, Apple iBook G4, 12 inch which is, you know, with the whole Apple thing. It's kind of getting kind of boring, right? But I I so but I remembered I had bought this machine. It's the Zenith Mini Sport Sub Notebook computer. I actually bought this in 90 late 92, eh, maybe mid 92 because I bought it at a really good price at a computer shopper because it was already like three and a half years old and it you know, there some company was clearing them out. Um, to, to take a, two classes in college while I was still in the military in Germany. And I actually used the laptop um, to take a Lotus 1-2-3 programming class as well as a, a D-Base 3-plus programming class. And it was really it was great for that. I really enjoyed using D-Base it. D-Base 3. Yep, I really oh, enjoyed it. That's one thing I ran on my Toshiba. I had D-Base 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I was running on that. Which that two two was I guess the standard that was around for a long time and well the D base two I think was also on uh, oh CPM uh, CPM systems so it it had a long life as D base two um, so I, I stuck a uh, so another uh, link in the show notes this is actually over to the Digi Barn and um, they have a really nice little pictorial of the the Mini Sport so a couple things that were interesting about the Mini Sport is. Um, you know, it didn't have a full-size laptop screen. It had the sort of a hybrid of the narrow, small ones, and you know, not you know, not too short, but not a full-size laptop screen. Um, mine had two megabytes of RAM, and uh, what was cool about that is, so it had MS DOS 3.3 built into ROM, so I didn't take any space. You have to load it; it was very fast. It was an ADC88 running at 4.77, which, you know, when I bought mine in 92, that was kind of slow, right? But because it ran out of ROM, um, and also one megabyte of my RAM I could use as a RAM disk. And so, so for instance, I put Lotus 1.2.3. I took these classes at two different times, so I was able to put Lotus 1.2.3 on it and then DBase3 Plus on that RAM drive each time. So it ran really fast off of there. And then you had one meg of actual RAM. And then it, what was built into it is it was a two-inch disk drive. Another uh, reason to use the RAM disks <laughs> and, <laughs> to yep. load up everything off the two-inch drive. And you can see um, some pictures of little diskettes by Fujifilm. So this was a standard that obviously did not, um, you know, did not go over. It they look like the two-inch disks that were used on some word processing systems at the time, or were they still different than that? I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever seen them anywhere else. And they literally were two-inch. Not there was also like. I think some other standard that tried to cut, well, they weren't standards, but another format that tried to come out like two and a half inch, I think. Um, but it was pretty neat. Um, the other, Oh, the other great thing about this laptop is it came with a cable and it came with lap link built into ROM as well. And, oh, really? Okay. That's interesting. And for how old this thing was, you could, um, so I guess it's okay for me to say this, but you know I never purchased Lotus One Two Three or D Base Three Plus because what I was able to do was go to the college computer lab, right? Plug my little mini yep. sport into one of the computers there, and then I, and then I could remotely put LapLink on one of the computers, and then I could copy D Base Three Plus. That's right. There's and Lotus One Two Three remote install over onto my own laptop, and then I could then I had it to run for for the course. 
and I didn't have to go back to the computer lab, which I deleted it when I was done. I'm sure there are other people who did something similar. As I wasn't exactly to- stealing it, I was just, you know, instead of having to sit in the computer lab the whole time to do my work, I was able to temporarily put it on my laptop. But that was, uh, that was, I was really impressed with that feature. It worked really well, too. And it was like, wow, it's just, you wouldn't think old technology would be able to do that. But, um, but it was a neat laptop. And, um, I, I've had two of them over the years and both of them, I had that original one. It finally succumbed to the battery completely dying. And it was one of those laptops where if the battery is completely dead, it won't work anymore because the power supply is always running off the battery. And even when it's plugged in, that's just, just like those Toshiba T1000 series. You got to get those batteries fixed. And years later, I finally found another one and I had that for a number of years and would mess around with it. And it finally died too. And, and uh, I didn't throw it away. I mean, I like gave it to somebody else who might try to rebuild the battery or do something that was outside of my, my realm. But anyway, so, so, so that was a technically, you know, a real laptop that I really used, you know, I was a Mac person, so I didn't really do a whole lot with it other than use it in school during that time. But, uh, but it was great for that. Yeah. It gave you what you needed in a nice compact design. Yeah. Yeah, definitely like the uh, closest thing to a netbook or an ultra book in uh, the early 90s. And I don't know how much, you know, I think I remember the price. I think I got it for $400 in like 92 or, yeah, 92-ish or whatever. Um, but, and I'm certain they cost $1,200 originally, something like that. So that wraps it up then for, for this show. Do we have any uh, Facebook comments you want to share? Well, I'm looking through that here. Um Let's I was see. just on Twitter earlier, I, and um, I, I retweeted a few things. Nothing, n- nothing um, too big a deal, though. That ne- uh, let me go to the. Somebody here commented on the link. Uh, yeah, I, I put, uh, I posted about this uh, uh, very old lady who used to do punch card stuff. Uh, I think I did that. <laughs> very old lady. Well, I, I put it, it. Bubbles Whiting. That was her name. Um, I came across this. YouTube video from somewhere it shows uh, she was talking about how she was using punch cards, the, the Hollerith and IBM punch card systems. Um, and I thought, okay, it's it, just the video itself. She's a sweet old lady. She talks about this stuff. She has pretty good memory about what she can tell you. She says she forgets a few things, but she gives you a lot of information about what it was like back then. And I posted that and somebody uh, commented Thomas, uh, I guess it's D-Z-U-B-I-N, Zubin, I'll pronounce it, um, saying that uh, he used punch cards in his uh, uh, first year of computer science uh, and had a whole hour-long class on using a, a IBM key punch. I don't know if too, there's too many people who use those things for home computing. Uh, don't know how far no. you'll get doing that stuff. Uh, scrolling back, uh, I see just basically a lot of people like links and stuff or hear somebody have posted something on January 2nd, um, where you had posted, did you ever buy a personal computer in the toy store? Uh. We actually have a few comments there. Mike Lehman said he bought his Commodore 64, uh, and the first cassette drive and finally a total of two 1541s all from Toys R Us. And James, oh, some of these names I have a hard time <laughs> pronouncing, uh, Oviach, O-V-I-Y-A-C-H, um, and I know I'm butchering these names, bought um, 
or his grandfather bought for him a Commodore 64 C 1541 uh, model or dash two from Toys R Us. See, Toys R Us had a lot of cool things. As I, I bought my uh, MPS 803 printer from Toys R Us, bought my Commodore 64 and 1541 on layaway, as we heard in the previous uh, show uh, at, at AFES, at, at the uh, Army and Air Force Exchange Service department store. Right. Yeah, we had a few comments since then. Well, over we on t- some. Go oh yeah, go ahead and do the Twitter. Uh, I think we also have some, got some more on the website. Okay, we'll look on the website and I'll mention Twitter. So, and some of these I retweeted. Um, so Matt London mentioned because I was talking about some of my old Macs. Um, bus termination is there to stop signal reflection. You know, Mac SCSI terminations. Yes. He said. Um, I'm trying to look at uh, Peter Satinsky did a good explanation of it in the TRS-80 Trash Talk episode eight. So check that out. Um, oh, and then uh, Peter came in and said, actually, that was Peter Bartlett who talked about bus termination on tra- TRS-80 Trash Talk. Let's see. And also Matt London also mentioned, oh, that was a great segment, actually, which is why it's stuck in his memory. So check that out. Josh Malone said, uh, don't feel bad about the Commodore. Someone smashed my car window in 2002 to steal two microchannel hard drives. Because <laughs> someone had stole my, my Commodore 64. Ben Granville had two different posts. He mentions my first purchased computer, uh, quotes, quote unquote, was an Amiga 500 with 1084S monitor from Creative Computers in Lawndale, California sometime in late 1989. And he also says, by the way, I picked up one of the Commodore 64C test pilot bundles in the late 90s on eBay. The box is huge. And yeah, yes. it was. Because that, that's where I had gotten that one uh, combo pack. Because you got to think it had the 64C in it as well as the uh, disk drive and the software bundle and everything else. All ready to go. And uh, let's see. is that? I think that's it. It's worth mentioning on uh, on Twitter. Yeah. So go ahead. All right. Uh, on the website, I think there's three comments since the last time I read comments through here. So we're talking just after the uh, uh, after Christmas. Um, Cyber Fritz said that they enjoy the episode very much and actually won the auction on the AT and T EO communicator, the one that I pointed out. Really? Yeah. Um, so. I guess the person who bought that, because uh, I, I usually do, or did I do a live auction, or did I do a completed auction on that one? Uh, either way, uh, now he says he's having problems powering the thing. He just wanted to know if somebody had a spare power supply for that. Uh, the only thing, I, I don't have a spare power supply. The only thing I can think of, and I'd have to actually look at a picture of one of these again, usually these devices, they put the voltage rating, the voltage and current rating somewhere on the label, along with a depiction of what part of the power connector, I'm assuming it's a barrel connector, is positive and which is you know negative. And as long as you can match the voltage and at least the same current, so if it says it needs one amp, you can use one amp or more, but the voltage needs to be about the same. And as long as you have the polarity correct on the connector that goes into it, you could probably cobble something together from Radio Shack that will power that thing. But if it has a non-standard connector, then still the same rules apply electrically, but you have to figure out a way to wire it up. Yeah. 
And yeah, that was on uh, December 28th. And on January 6th, on our Vector Graphic uh, Incorporated Vector 1, um, guy comes in, his name is Silence Friction. Um, and he said he was the PC board layout designer on the Vector 4 and 5. Wow. And he does have his website. Uh, it looks like he does uh, He does print circuit board designs and stuff. Um, yeah, we might have to see if uh, we can get a hold of him, pick his brain on some of his experience back then or some of his uh, – um, some if he has any stories. But I, thank you very much for uh, replying to this and, and listening to the episode. All right. So well, one last item. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. From from the tenth, January tenth. I was I was just scrolling here. That's uh, right. Jim Osborne. Um, what's he want? Said, what's he want? He's what is he want? <laughs> he's whining. He's saying he's loving our podcast. So shh, 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 the money's working. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> he goes. He's only three quarter of the way through, but he's surprised he, had, he hasn't heard us guys mention using our computers to access BBSs with a three hundred baud modem. <laughs> well, because it was painful, and we try to forget that stuff. Um, and he said he believes it was 84, 85 time frame when he got his first modem for the Apple II. Uh, so this is from our last episode, uh, mm-hmm. a comment from our last episode. That, of course, opened a whole new world of functionality. And, yeah, my first experience with uh, BBSs was the same way. It's like, where was this world? Oh, I know. I couldn't afford it. Uh, but once I was able to afford it. Uh, it's know. a whole new world. Exactly. And, and yeah, <laughs> maybe you can put that as the ending music. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, maybe if you were stationed overseas, that might have not been much of an option. Anyway, he's saying, uh, great hearing about our first experiences. Yeah, uh, that, that was David's idea, and, and it was it was nice to uh, reminisce on, on that stuff. I, I I never forget my first computer, you know, my VIC-20, um, but I never hooked that up to the Internet either. I never hooked a Commodore 64 up. The Amiga for me was the first one I hooked online, mm. and I think I did it at 1,200 baud. Yeah, and, and I skipped over last show the um, the classic because I, I wanted to go right into the the Performa four hundred or whatever the color one. But actually, that classic that was the first computer I ever had that was on the internet on CompuServe. You know, where I got a modem and got on CompuServe, and then I, I've been on the internet ever since. So all my other Macs and stuff have always been on the internet ever since then. So of course my. Uh, Let's see the. Did it? Yeah, I guess the Performa 400 had a built-in modem, and so did the, the other ones I mentioned in this show. But oh, wait, I, I think it line with my Commodore 64 for a short time. I used the Quantum Link, but mm-hmm. then I got my Amiga, and I just got a regular serial modem because I couldn't afford Quantum Link, and I didn't know of any local BBSs that would support yeah, and it. I regret that I didn't. Yeah, sort of missed out on some of that with the BBSs. I didn't really get a chance to do any of that. Yeah, it was it was late for me. It was it was the late eighties for me. All right, so I'm going to wrap it up so we can go. Um, so show fifty seven is we're going to try to get totally back on our normal schedule, recording Sundays. So and releasing it on Sunday, January 29th. So that's less than two weeks. And we're, we're going to start looking at the world of the smartphone. You know, we're fully into the third tier of personal computing and the last portion of it. And uh, obviously, the smartphone is hugely significant, big part of our culture. And this is this is going to be the 10th anniversary. Uh, actually, that was in the news where um, the 10th anniversary of the iPhone. I kind of it's the 10th anniversary of when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone 
really it, it, it didn't come out to like the summer or whatever but in any case so it's the final evolutionary step of the third tier of personal computing so we're going to jump into smartphones starting next show um you can find all our show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com send feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com you can leave um you can tweet to us facebook comments comments right on the web page on the different show notes um Yes, we have a Facebook account. We have a Twitter account. Uh, and also, you can go to the Vintage Computer Forum and discuss and things in there, too. All, the, all these links are in the show notes. Which I've started going to more often now. So neat stuff there. There's lots of information. Uh, I guess we talked about trying to highlight one thing each time there. We have to try to remember that, maybe starting next time in like our little news segment. Maybe yes. we just highlight something worth you know to talk about there. See, I should have went there for this show. Anyway, that's going to be it for this episode. Remember, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Always fully research all of your purchases and sellers first before buying. So see you next time, Jeff. See ya. point of view no one to tell us no or where to go or say we're only dreaming a whole new world a dazzling place I never